First Peter chapter one, verse eight through twelve, and also Isaiah fifty-three. Again, I think I asked you first thing off this morning. How many of you are going through something? You're in need of a rescue of some kind, some sort. Okay. Well, last time, last Sunday, how many of you were here last Sunday? Okay. We began to learn how that how can you can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. And it just sounds really weird just to say it out loud, right? To rejoice in the midst of suffering. But the Bible is full of examples. Uh, Paul writes from a Philippian jail and the, the uh letter to the, the Philippians is filled with joy. Paul and Silas uh, down in the bottom of the dungeon singing praise songs. It's crazy. And Peter here writes this epistle to a church that is in the midst of much worse persecution trials than even anybody in this room could claim. Um, there were saints that were being burned alive uh, as torches in Nero's garden while he partied. There were saints that were sewn up in animal skins, left to be ripped apart by wild animals. There were saints that were uh, fed to the lions. There were saints that were um, put behind the chariots and dragged until they were dead. This is a church that Peter rescues, suffering terrible persecution. And if you were here last time, you saw we mentioned four R's that we can remind ourselves that we can focus on to help us have joy unspeakable, even in the midst of suffering. And uh, I mentioned it this way, that the four R's that you can tell the devil when he tries to board your ship during your trials. You can say, "R, not so fast. Yeah, that was the same reaction I got last week. Um, here's the four R's. You can rejoice in the fact that he has secured resurrection for you, for the, for the saint, if you know Jesus, all of your deaths end in resurrection. He solved your greatest problem, death. With one act, one move, he conquered the grave. Here's another R. You can rejoice in what is reserved for you in heaven. That is an inheritance, he says, that is incorruptible. It's undefiled and it will not fade away. He says, thirdly, you can rejoice the fact that even in these trials, the ones that you're experiencing right now, he's refining you. Look at that. Verse six. Let's get a running start this morning. In this, you greatly rejoice. There's that joy word, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested or refined by fire. That's the way gold is tested and that's the way your faith is tested. That it may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that fourth R we touched on last time. You can rejoice because you can look forward to a revealing a rewarding reunion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse eight. That's where we've left off. It says, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice. There's that word with joy. There it is again, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How many of you in the midst of your trial right now are experiencing joy inexpressible? OK, it's available. Joy inexpressible. 
I'm sure you, I, I hope, as Christians, you've experienced this at some point. I experience it sometimes when we're worshiping and I just can't finish a phrase or a song because I, like your, your throat chokes up. You're just physically unable to do it. Um, that's when I'm always thankful that we have people on the worship team that can keep playing. But that where it's almost kind of like God knows that if I were to open my mouth and try to explain it, that I would fail miserably. So he mercifully just shuts me up. And it's joy inexpressible. He says, whom you have not seen, you love, though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now watch, it says receiving the end of your faith. That is the goal of your faith. And I think he's saying, by the way, receiving right now or enjoying right now the goal, the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. I think speaking to, again, persecuted church. He's saying, guys, those of you who are enjoying this life, it's because you're, you're dwelling on, you're living right now, enjoying the salvation of your souls. Not of your pocketbook. Not of, right? Um, not of your comfort, but of your souls. And now, Peter's going to go on, basically... Uh, I don't want to say a diatribe, but a lengthy discussion about this thing which he calls your salvation. He wants us to dwell upon our salvation, the rescuing of our souls. That's what salvation there means. Um, Soterio, it means to rescue. So today, really, what we're going to do is dwell upon this rescue operation that Jesus embarked upon. Um, Here's some P's that have to do with this rescue operation, okay? Um, number one, this rescue operation was prophesied long, long ago. Number two, this rescue operation was perplexing to those prophets. And number three, we are so privileged to be participants in this rescue operation. So there's some peas there. Uh, when the joy, when the, when the devil comes to try to take your joy, you can go to him. Wow, same reaction as before. Um, all right, here we go. First of all, the rescue operation was prophesied long ago. Watch this. Uh, verses 10 and 11. Uh, sometimes Peter does this. Sometimes Paul does this. Just a big old run-on sentence. And I think it's because maybe they're just overwhelmed by the, the glory of it. Look at verse 10. He says, of this salvation. Okay, that's the focus. Let's talk about the salvation of yours, he says. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. We, we need to keep our thinking caps on today because for me, whenever I see a run-on sentence, I have to like start to break it down and, and because I get exhausted by the end. Okay, But again... This is all the Word of God, and, and He has so much in it for us. First of all, the rescue operation was prophesied long ago. Think about this. The original rescue operation, or the, the, the original, I should say, Operation Rescue, was devised in the war room, if you will, of heaven before the worlds began. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they knew 
but humanity. They knew that you would need a Savior. They knew before the worlds began that we would blow it. We would completely mangle up our lives, collectively and individually. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they agreed on this rescue mission. But here's the thing, and I think you've discovered this as well. God, He's got the plan all figured out, but He doesn't reveal it all at once. The Old Testament is basically God saying, I'm going to reveal this in my time. I'm going to share with you hints, clues, but it's not all going to make sense yet. Right? The Old Testament is filled with this, this uh, phenomenon called prophecy. What that mean? means to tell beforehand. The Old Testament is one big or several, a whole library then of books prophesying this Operation Rescue. Matter of fact, again, just to get the sense of it, uh, verses 10 and 11, you guys read the, these words. Uh, I'll, I'll leave them for you to read. The words prophets and prophesied and testified beforehand. Okay? It's all the same idea. Verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Old Testament, you may have heard, is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's all the same story. You could say the Old Testament is the gospel foretold and the New Testament is when the gospel unfolds. Matter of fact, not three chapters into this glorious book that's in your lap. Right, it's crazy, right in the middle of the story of the fall, right, right at the moment when Adam and Eve blew it, when they began the mangling of our lives, right in the midst of that, Operation Rescue has already begun. Because look at Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. It's verse 15. It reads this way. I will put enmity... Oh, by the way, let me, let me back up. Uh, this is when Adam and Eve and the serpent are all pointing the fingers at each other, right? So, and it wasn't my fault. It was his fault. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. And God begins to pass out the cursings as well as... Uh, to, to put a name on it. Genesis 3.15, he's speaking to the serpent. He says, And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, the, the devil, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Well, wait a second. A woman doesn't have seed unless it's a miraculous conception. Between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says, right in the middle of the mangling, says, oh, and here's, by the way, a clue. There's a, there's a hint. There's coming one who will crush the head of the enemy, but it will cost him something. He'll, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Right? That's just the beginning of it. The Old Testament then is filled, is bursting with prophecy about this rescue operation. Right? You see it foreshadowed in Abraham when God says, Take now your son, Isaac, your only son, your only begotten son. And sacrifice him. Go up to this mountain and sacrifice him. You see it in the Passover story, the blood on the lintels and the doorposts at Passover. You see it in the pa Passover story, the, the lamb that was slain to set 
a whole nation, a whole race free. You see it in the Psalms of David over and over again. Books that talk about this majestic king whose reign will never end. And yet you also see in the Psalms of David, Psalm 22, which if you you read it through, it's like a medical case study, first person of the crucifixion. If you've never read the Psalm 22, write it down right now. Read through that and tell me that it's not Jesus. The very first words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tell me it's not Jesus on the cross. And of course, the the prophetic books, uh, Daniel, Isaiah, all of them, the Old Testament is filled with foretelling, with prophecy about this perfect rescue plan. That's why, guys, Jesus said, John 5:39, arguing with the Pharisees, you know, that happened occasionally. Him arguing with the Pharisees, he said this. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. He says, if you were really reading the Old Testament with a heart and, and knowing, knowing the author, you would realize this whole book speaks of me. Okay, now, quick, how does prophecy work? Is it just a few very smart guys who happen to have figured out Operation Rescue? No, actually, verse 11 tells us very clearly. Look at it, verse 11 of our text. First Peter chapter 1, verse 11 says, They were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand. So prophecy works this way. Holy men of God yield themselves up and God is the one who writes the book. See, it wasn't that the prophets were super smart, the elite. It was that the Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, was working through them. He was the author. The prophets were just the secretary. He was the writer, but they were the quill, if you will. I'm a poet, but I know it. Second Peter chapter one. So if you were to look over a few pages, the beginning of the second book from Peter reads this way. Chapter one, verse twenty one. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they're just the pen. God is the one who is writing it. Okay. Verses ten and eleven then give us this is crazy, I think, when you think about it. Verse ten eleven give us the second P. Not only was the this Operation Rescue prophesied, but second P, these prophets who wrote it were perplexed. Verse ten. It says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired. That first word, inquired, means to seek out, to search for, to seek out, to investigate, to scrutinize, to seek for oneself, to beg, to crave. So, well, let me go on to the next phrase here, and search carefully. This means to search out, to search anxiously and diligently. To search after or thoroughly investigate. Crazy, this, this word was first used to tell of a dog sniffing out something with its nose. So, what he's saying is that the prophets themselves were, after they would write, they would search the scriptures to figure out how does this fit together. The prophets themselves were like bloodhounds on the scent of this Operation Rescue. So, get the picture with me, if you will. For instance, uh, Isaiah chapter 9. 
It's a pretty familiar scripture, right? Uh, we, we read it a lot during the Christmas season. Isaiah chapter 9. Let's say he's writing verse 6. Okay? Isaiah sits down. He hears from the word, hears the word of the Lord. He begins to write, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of, of Peace. Think about that. Get yourself back in that moment. Can you see Isaiah writing it down? Going, that is awesome. <laughs> I wonder what it means. <laughs> I mean, he had to know that it had something to do with God's perfect plan of redemption. He had to know it had to do something about the Messiah. But how many questions would pop up in his head? Uh, Lord, okay, in, in the first phrase you say that the son is, is born. But then in the second phrase you say he's given. How can a son be both born and, but like given, like by adoption? Um, Lord, you say that he's the everlasting God without beginning and end. But how can he be born? Isn't that a beginning? I think there's had to have been more questions than answers for the prophet. So verse 11 then paints the, the, the picture then of prophets just like Isaiah. All of them, they would write things down and then they would go. All right. Now to try to figure out what that means. Right? They are searching like bloodhounds with their noses in the scriptures, trying to understand it, trying to get it. Verse 10 of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you searching what or what manner of time. In other words, they, they knew that there was a plan, but they wanted details searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand. And guys, here's coming up in these next verse, these next words. I think this was what was most perplexing of all. It says the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, I don't have any doubt the Old Testament prophets, when they would write, they would lay down that quill. That last phrase was no, no problem. The glories that would follow. Well, yeah. He's the Messiah. This is awesome. He's going to come and rescue us. But it's that first part. What? Sufferings of Christ? Right? The, the bloodhounds of the scriptures are chasing the scent. When they do, the mighty Messiah makes perfect sense. But the suffering Savior, that just doesn't work. It, it does not compute. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. I just kind of want to give you a little vignette of how this how this plays out. And, and Peter's focus, by the way, he's trying to let us see how how blessed we are to be where we are. Look at Isaiah 53. OK, um, we could we go on and on like this in this chapter in Psalm 22 and other places. But I just want to give you a little taste of it. Isaiah 53, verse three, Isaiah is writing the words. He's the secretary of God. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now, for us, it totally makes sense. 
Right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. We know that, for instance, he was bruised at the hands of the Roman guards. We know that the stripes that he suffered were at the end of the cat of nine tails, which was this whip that included pieces of glass and bone that would literally fillet the back. We know that this terribly painful story, this immense suffering, we know that God was weaving it into a plan of redemption. That he was wounded, he was, he was uh, hurt for our transgression in our place. But think about Isaiah, the guy who writes it. It's like, what in the world could this mean? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see 2020. We know that the King of Kings, Jesus, the Lord of Lords, he remained silent when he was accused. He remained silent while they plucked out his beard, while they laid the stripes upon him, while they pierced his hands. He remained silent. When he could have, when he should have, by our thinking, cried out, it's not me, I didn't do it. He'd say silent, like a lamb to the slaughter. But Isaiah writes it, says, how can this be? Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. We look at that and we know. Oh, yeah, he was crucified between two criminals, two thieves. It's a criminal common death. But it says, but with the rich at his death, we look at that and go, yeah, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. It says, but with the rich at his death, because he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Don't you think Isaiah wrote this and was like, I just don't get it. This is the mighty Messiah? I, I think Isaiah would have probably been tempted to say to the Lord, so much suffering, I don't understand. To say to the Lord, this is your perfect plan? Let me ask you, has anyone here said those words to the Lord or felt those words Lately, this is your perfect plan? Or really, this suffering? You, you can change anything, Lord. Lord, you're allowing this in my life? Well, here's the thing. We're going to see in this book over and over again. You're, I was going to say you're going to get sick of me saying it. I don't think you will because it's a neat thing. But you'll, you'll be able to finish my sentence. Whenever I say, as we go through this book, if I say suffering then, you'll know the next word is glory. Because over and over again, as we go through the scripture, you're going to see suffering then. Yeah, let's do that again. Suffering then. You're going to see it. Suffering, then glory. Isaiah, let's, let's say Isaiah, 
He's just exhausted from the emotional drain of it here. He takes a coffee break, right? He's scratching his head. Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. The Lord commands him to pick up the quill. Well, here comes the glory. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Now, how do you make your your place among the dead and yet still prolong your days? Right? It says he shall see his seed. How many other people does that remind you of? The fact that Jesus said of himself, unless a seed dies, it lives alone. But if it's willing to die, it brings forth much fruit. Jesus saying to us, look, I can I could refuse to die. Everybody on my way to the cross was telling me, just just save yourself. But if I choose that, I live alone. But if I choose death, I bring you with me a a whole uh, bumper crop of, of fruit. It says, he shall see his seed. In other words, there's this reunion, this rewarding reunion that Jesus puts in front of him. Reminds me of the the scripture in in Hebrews, right? That that, uh, he did not not put off the the suffering, but he looked toward that the author of the the prize, excuse me, trying to get it from memory, can't do it. But that the goal when he suffered was that he knew he would get to be Spending eternity with you. So here comes the glory. Verse 10, the end of 10. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession. For the transgressors. Suffering. Then glory. Again, don't you think Isaiah wrote down these words and went, "Uh, I don't get it. Suffering. Glory. How does it work? When's it going to happen? How are you? When are you going to do this? Well, apparently, according to our text, that happened with most, if not all, the prophets. They would write and they would go, okay, some of that I get, some of that. Lord, what's what's going on? How are you going to weave all this together? And apparently the answer... This, the common answer to these prophets who wrote and wanted to understand the co- common answer from the Lord was I'm not telling you it, this is this is not for you to know right now. Look at verse 12. It says to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here's the third P. And this is, I think, the focus if you're trying to maintain joy in the midst of suffering, and this is this, we are privileged. You're like, I don't know if I feel privileged. We are. Hopefully I can convince you here. We are so privileged to participate in the perfect plan that perplexed the prophets. See, Peter is saying, guys, don't you realize that when the, the prophets searched the scriptures, when they were craving, when they were begging to see how Operation Rescue would work, they would say to the Lord, Lord, how's this going to work? We don't understand. And he would say to them, look, that's because it's not written for you to understand. The Lord would say to them, it's, it's written for a generation, a whole race of people that begins after, say, 30 A.D. And they would go, what's A.D.? And he would say, that's my point exactly. Verse 12. To them it was revealed not to themselves, but to us. 
that's, that's us, guys. To us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter says to the persecuted church, church if you're trying to uh, glean all of the things from last Sunday and this Sunday, it's this. If you're, if you're looking for joy, and, and again, the battle for joy is won or lost in your mind. How you see yourself, how you see the situation, how you see your Lord in all of it. Peter says to this persecuted church who has it, believe it or not, worse than us. It's like, guys, think about this word, resurrection. It's guaranteed there's a resurrection at the end of this for you. Think about this, this word reserved. There's stuff, there's inheritance reserved for you in heaven that will not diminish, it will not fade. It's incorruptible, it's undefilable. He says, guys, remember this. The Lord, even in your, your suffering, is refining you so that you'll come forth as gold. He's not refining you to destroy you. No, he's to take out the impurities. He says, guys, remember this. There's a revealing, rewarding reunion ahead of you. And he says, remember this. Already, in one sense, you've been rescued. And in your future is an even more mind-blowing rescue. Peter would say to them and to us, look, you are living in amazing times. I think sometimes Christians, we want safe, comfortable lives. God wants to give us adventurous lives. Right? He does. He wants to give us adventurous lives and he wants us to come through the other end of it as gold. Peter says, look, you're living in amazing times. The prophets long to look into. They were perplexed. And we are so privileged. Bring this into the New Testament. Who was who was the last prophet of old, if you will? John the Baptist. Right. This guy was anointed from the womb. He was the guy who went before Jesus, paving the way for the king. Right. He was the voice in the wilderness saying, get ready, make way for the king. Who would be on the inside, you would think? You would think this guy would have the inside story. Well, I don't know if you if you remember, but John the Baptist hangs up in prison and Jesus leaves town. And John the Baptist begins just like, a, hey, send a messenger for me. Uh, are you the Christ? I was thinking it was going to be like mighty Messiah. And it seems like it's like suffering Savior here. What's going on? Are you the Christ? Or do we look for another? John, Jesus says, well, go back, send him word, right? The lame walk, the blind see, lepers are, are healed. John, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And then he turns to the crowd who's going, whoa, is this some kind of, you know, crisis of faith here from John the Baptist? And he begins to speak these awesome words about John the Baptist. And here, here's one of them, Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says to this crowd, Assuredly, I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Awesome. He says, but he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Raise your hand if you feel like you're greater than John the Baptist. No? Well, Jesus doesn't lie. How can that be? Guys, we're privileged. Here's, here's how it is. We are greater in the revelation that we enjoy. John the Baptist was the, old, the last one of those prophets that went, man, I got 
a whole bunch of information here and I can't piece it together. I don't understand how he could be a suffering Savior. I, I signed up for a mighty Messiah. John the Baptist was the last guy who didn't have that information, if you will. We are so blessed to be in this spot in history. Matthew uh, 13, I think Jesus could have been speaking directly to us when he said, said to his disciples this. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus, with his own lips, called us blessed. It's like you guys are so in such a great spot to, to, to have the information that you have in, in terms of world history and the gospel and this Operation Rescue. Think about it. We have a, a, a front row seat. We have this 2020 vision where we can see now this imponderable question. And this must have been one of the things the prophets were asking. How are you going to pull this off? Okay, we have really mangled this up and you are going to redeem us. You're going to be able to call us righteous at the end, even though we've mangled it up. And still, you're going to be just. You're going to forgive us who we keep blowing it. And yet you are still going to be just. You're not going to be an unjust judge. You're actually going to work this out. How are you going to do it? Here's how he's going to do it. Justify a sinful race and still remain righteous comes by giving up a perfect sacrifice. His one and only son. That baffled the prophets. And check it out. Still to this day, it still baffles the angels. You see that? The last few words of our text this morning. Things which angels desire to look into that word desire it's actually a very passionate word it means to intensely want to crave again these guys the angels are looking at our whole situation and scratching their heads they don't get it where it says that they desire to look into it's the same word if you look in the text of uh, when Peter and John raced to the tomb on that resurrection morning to look into actually means to stoop down, to try to assess the situation, to try to figure it out, right? Remember when John puts in his gospel, oh, I won the foot race, by the way. But, but when I got there, I stooped down to try to assess the situation. And when Peter got there, he ran right in. Go figure. The idea is to, to be on the outside looking in, to, to really want to understand it, but not quite get it. You guys, have you ever thought about this? When, when you start to feel sorry for yourself. you ever thought about the fact that angels kind of envy you? That the angels are on the outside looking in? Oh, you say, wait a second, they're at heaven and I'm, I'm kind of on the outside looking. No, wait a second. In the grand scheme of things, in the eternal situation... We are going to be the ones who are so blessed. We're going to be the ones that are on the inside. And the angels are the ones that are on the outside looking in. Here's what I mean. See, this and this came up uh, last week a little bit. I'm not sure how it works or worked. But the angels, they had kind of one chance to choose up sides. And they did. According to scriptures, about a third of the angels uh, defected. They made their choice and 
they are called demons. That was it. There's no other choices for the angels to make. So think about this. There's angels who've never needed forgiveness. And there's angels, demons, who never will get forgiveness. That's all there is. There's not one single angel that understands the story of redemption. That can go, I have so blown it. Lord, will you forgive me? And felt the hand of the Lord say, yes, I've made a way for that. An angel has never been forgiven of sin. They've never known guilt. Right? Some of them have been guilty, but right now they're just saying, it's not my fault, it's God's fault. They've never experienced that temporary separation from God and then been redeemed. Let me put it this way. How many of you are familiar with Romans chapter 7? Some of you are like, yes, that's my whole life, right? Which is where Paul's like, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I never seem to get done. And he ends the whole chapter frustrated with himself. Ends the whole chapter saying, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The answer is, who will rescue me? Jesus. Here's my point. There's no angel that lives in Romans chapter 7 who's like, oh, I'm a wreck. I've blown it. And therefore, there's no angel that lives in Romans chapter 8. Do you see it? See, the angels are on the outside looking in. They don't get it. There's never an angel who does what they don't want to do and doesn't do what they want to do. There's never an angel uh, who could speak about forgiveness that they find in Jesus. There's never been an angel that could say, I once was lost and now am found. There's never been an angel that could say, I once was blind, but now I see. Angels are in a really interesting situation, right? They're announcers. that They, they go around announcing, but they kind of don't quite understand the message. Luke chapter 15, verse 10 says that whenever one sinner repents, right, there is joy in the presence of the angels. So I kind of wonder if the angels are like, that's awesome. Yeah. High five. What, how does that work? Listen, guys, that, what that means to me is that we are going to enjoy heaven so much more than the angels. We have a frame of reference. We know what wretches we are. He's given us this free will and we've chosen, we've used it to mangle up our lives and He comes and He restores, He redeems. We can sing songs like white as snow. Though my sins were like scarlet, I can be forgiven. Here's the thing, guys. And if you've been following with me so far and thank you that you have, again, a lot of this is kind of head knowledge. And that's my... It's a, it's a good thing, but I don't ever want us to just leave with head knowledge. And I don't think the Lord does either. So here's what I'm wondering by way of application. What are some of the applications that we might have here? Well, let's go back to verse 8. 
Because I think verse 8 kind of draws a line in the sand. Peter's challenging as he says, I want you to think this way. I want you to think about your resurrection. I want you to think what's reserved in heaven for you. I want you to realize you're being refined in the fire, as it, as it were. I want you to realize that you should be looking for this rewarding reunion with, with, with Jesus. I want you to realize that you are the recipients of this rescue mission. And verse 8 kind of draws a line in the sand. Here's the thing. You can focus on these things that I've just mentioned to you, Peter says. Or you can focus on your current problems. You can have, believe it or not, joy unspeakable. Full of glory. And I don't know, I don't know if in your mind there's anybody here going, nope, not going to happen in my circumstance. To know what to tell you, it's your choice. Okay, I'm not saying that, that you're going to be... Uh, singing praise songs at the top of your lungs all day. It might look kind of odd anyway. But there's joy that's available to you even now in your circumstance. You can have joy unspeakable, full of glory, or you can say to God, well, look, I know that you say you're in the rescuing business, but I'm not going to rejoice. I'm not going to speak well of you until you change my circumstance. Can I say to you, if that's you, that you sound an awful lot like Thomas to me. Remember Thomas? When we were going through the, the book of John, Thomas was the one guy who didn't show up on that, that Lord's Day for the meeting, right? The moral of story is show up at church. He didn't show up and he, he missed when the rest of them got to see the risen Lord. And when they tell him the story, he's like, whatever. He's so disappointed, so disillusioned, whatever it is. He's like, I'm not going to believe it until I put my fingers in his hands. And a week later, Jesus shows up. Says, Thomas, here, put your finger in my wounds. Notice that I'm real. And, and Thomas says, my God, my God. Now, you're thinking, well, that's not a bad into the story. Thomas called him out and Jesus proved it. I guess I'll, I'll use that route. Let me remind you what I remind you when we were in that gospel. I think Thomas had the worst week of his life between the time when he said, I won't believe it till I see it, till when he saw it. One whole week filled with self-doubt, why in the world didn't I show up? I mean, all these guys, they haven't lied to me yet. We've been through the crucible. I should believe him, but I just, I won't. I can't. I won't. What a miserable existence he had when, in fact, Jesus had already secured his salvation. When Jesus had already done everything, there was no change in circumstance for that whole week. It was just that Thomas had not seen. So because he demanded to see, he was miserable. Um, you guys heard that. You guys know that I'm from Missouri, right? This show me state, right? Show me. If, if you live in the show me state on a map, it's Missouri. If you live in the show me state when it comes to faith, it's Missouri. It really is. If that's your mantra, it's like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rejoice until I see it. 
You won't be happy. And what did Jesus say? He said, look. Yes, you believe, Thomas, when he came back, he said, you believe because you see, he said, but blessed, happy are those who believe, though they do not see. That's why it says, verse eight, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see yet believing you rejoice with inexpressible joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Verse nine, receiving. I think that means now receiving right now the end of your faith that is living in constant awareness, the fact that Jesus has already done everything for you. Receiving that is now enjoying the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Last question. You guys are saved, right? I hope. If, you, if you've never known him, you can come to him today. Receive that salvation of your souls. But if you have known him, if you do know him, are you enjoying right now? the salvation of your souls? Or are you thinking a lot more about your circumstances? Joy, inexpressible. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and goodness. I thank you for these things. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you have written in this book that which never changes, but which is alive, Lord. So it almost seems to change for us because you, you meet us at our needs, which are changing all the time. Lord, I ask that you would uh, do just that today. Lord, if there's something that I've left unsaid, I pray that you just speak it into each uh, person's heart, Lord, uh, that you would minister to the saints, Lord, to the sheep who've come, Lord, who need a shepherd. Lord, you do the work of the ministry. Lord, I pray that you would bless, you'd encourage, you'd convict, you'd exhort, all of those things. And most of all, Lord, now help us to apply your message. We believe you when you say, and if we hear your words and we don't do anything with them, we're like guys that build their houses on sand. And we can have good looking houses, but they're going to fall in on us once that storm comes. So, Lord, help us now to apply your message in Jesus' name. Amen.